Welcome. My name is Lee Maxey. I'm the CEO here at MindMax, and we do a series of podcasts we call Mind Maxing. And this series is called Reflections and Repositioning. And if you're wondering how higher education is dealing with the global pandemic and their positioning for the future, this podcast is for you. We'll be speaking with some very interesting and smart people who are deans and directors at some of the leading institutions in the United States, hearing about their reflections and how their institutions or how they see higher ed as a whole repositioning itself for the future. So please join me as we hear from one of our interesting guests. Well, hello and welcome to a, another Mind Maxing podcast. And I'm delighted to be here with Karen Sibley, uh, a dear friend and colleague. We've known each other a long time and, and share many interests uh, beyond education. Um, and it's, it's really great to be with Karen. And, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to, to be able to share a podcast with Karen. So Karen Sibley is a uh, you know, currently the Vice President for Strategic Initiatives at Brown University, uh, and she is a founding dean of the School of Professional Studies at Brown University. Uh, and I was fortunate to watch her during that period of time and, and, and watch how the School of Professional Studies developed at Brown. Um, and I, I'd like to start with uh, Karen. Uh, we've had quite a year, uh, which is an understatement in, in many ways. Uh, but I'd love to hear some of your thoughts and, and reflections on the, the last year that we've had. Well, so uh, personal reflections are, uh, are interesting for everybody, although I think that our personal spheres have shrunk quite a bit to the four walls we live within, right? And uh, it's lovely to hear people who actually are escaping those four walls by getting out into uh, some of the places that you and I enjoy, Lee, being out on walks and enjoying nature and observing more of the world around us as we slow down a little bit. But um, I would say, as I think about higher education, but a little bit more broadly, education, of course, the big issue has been the rapid surge uh, into online instruction and all of the challenges that that presented for institutions from K-12 to higher education, certainly for faculty, uh, many, many, many of whom were not prepared to teach in that mode and didn't, uh, hadn't had the opportunity to reflect on the difference in pedagogy that exists in that mode and had to learn it um, essentially in crash course. Uh, the same is true for the children and their parents and the undergraduates and the lifelong learners all around the world who had the same kind of experience. And I'm, I'm thankful for organizations that provide technological resources. I, I know Coursera and edX, for example, stepped up. I'm sure MindMax and many other organizations did as well to support the initiatives that um, were being rushed into action in order to preserve opportunities for education to continue. And um, I think, you know, we started... Uh, rushing at that in March and April, and then relatively quickly began to understand that it wasn't going to be a sprint. It was actually going to be a marathon. I'm not sure that as we entered the fall and uh, 
schools were sometimes in person and sometimes online and have gone back and forth between the two and being closed and such. I'm not sure that we really thought of the marathon as something that could be a two or three year marathon. I think we were still in that hopeful space of, oh, but 2021 will 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 resurge in 2021 and we'll be back in our cozy residential classrooms and the world will become normal again. I think it is becoming ever more clear that that's not the case. And um, so that's hard in many ways, but it also is true that people have begun to appreciate the capacities that online instruction um, affords and to more deeply reflect on things that it enables that really residential education didn't enable and not to call out one is better than the other, but just to say, if we can embrace both effectively, then we can really improve education and access to education for many people. I appreciate the comment about the marathon. And I actually just reflected that you and I were sitting in your office talking about Obama's first hundred days, 12 years ago, and how neat that would be to put that online and have someone who's in political science from Brown running a, an online class around Obama's first hundred days and, and, uh, and how much has happened in 12 years and yet how much hasn't happened. Um, you mm -hmm. know, and you were very eager to try and move things forward and so forth. And, and uh, the largesse of an institution, as well as just higher ed in general, um, accreditation and all sorts of other factors. Um, agility is not necessarily the, uh, the hallmark of higher ed. So, um, but the. Well, and if I could add to that, Lee, it's, it's also not the hallmark of the users of higher ed or the, whether it's accrediting agencies or policy governing agencies, right? I mean, um, as I worked forward, as you, as you rightly pointed out from that, that was a really interesting reflection. I do remember that conversation about Obama's 100 days. I think Penn actually did it. So that's, we can go back and find out. Right. Um, but, uh, I, as I as I moved things forward and created blended programs in the School of Professional Studies, we began to discover that there were um, policies and restrictions inside the authorizing commissions um, in education. And we all remember that that crush of effort around online usability and the 50 states and, and cross-border collaboration and all of that. I mean, that, that was a tangle of mess left by um, a government that wasn't ready for online education to become a reality. And when you went, never mind the 50 state, you know, collaboration issue that we had to cross borders and go out of the country was really, really difficult in terms of authorizing credit for anything that was offered online, because it was just viewed as somehow couldn't possibly be good education. And so there were roadblocks there, crazy roadblocks that I think had to get torn down by the fact that the, when COVID came, we had to teach online and appreciate it and give credit for it. So you've had a, a year of the first part of the marathon. Um, you know, upon reflection, what are some things you see happening in the short term, the next six to nine months or so as 
schools or or Brown specifically have been thinking about how to plan for this upcoming you know spring and summer and fall. So there's uh, there's certainly a greater deal of nimbleness, flexibility, and interest among the Brown faculty with regard to uh, using technology for instruction. You know, there's everything from the hmm, I didn't know I could do that, uh, to you know, well I you know I'm a person with a pre-existing condition perhaps, and I don't really want to enter a residential classroom anytime soon. So this online capacity is giving me a great ability to continue in the work that I love without having to put my health at risk. So there's the whole spectrum of people. Um, I just uh, had a conversation with uh, one of our senior leaders last week about the fact that there's also heightened realization that we really have to commit to making sure that our graduate students learn the pedagogy of online instruction because it will be a part of their futures no matter what. Um, And I really like seeing the fact that our teaching center and the instructional design team that originated in the School of Professional Studies and then joined the teaching center, this was sort of a a prescient move on the part of the provost, I think, because as the digital teaching and instructional group became very robust and as the university became interested in sharing online capacity more broadly, there was a move to, to bring the teaching center and the digital teaching and learning group together. And now that move has been fully realized. They're excited to work with each other, but they've just been through the first part of the marathon where faculty so desperately needed their support and learned very quickly how important these people are and how much they how much faculty can accomplish in their own instruction in their own pedagogy and in the classrooms that they uh, enjoy online by using the assistance of these folks and and these folks are are people who love to solve problems right so a faculty member can describe something that they might like to do and uh, the instructional design team will go figure out what the best solution for that is. So um, collaboration and nimbleness has become uh, uh, something that exists between the faculty and the instructional design team, a a codependency that's really very positive. And I'm very hopeful that that's not going to be, um, it will never be eliminated, right? But uh, I hope it doesn't diminish when the opportunity to return to residential classrooms more safely, uh, I hope emerges by the fall. I think everybody is thinking that by the fall, we can have our students back on campus so long as the vaccine distribution goes well, that we will still have to engage in very careful, um, thoughtful use of, of healthcare protocols, but that we might be able to have more residential circumstances. And I really hope that that's true, especially for young children who need to be together. We all need to be together socially. We weren't meant to be Um, sequestered in our little caves. Um, So I see over the next six months that there will be, I hope, a new kind of a balance point so that it isn't the, there's only one way to do things or the best way to do things is the way we've done them for hundreds of years, that there will be an embracing of technology in order to do more and serve more effectively in uh, the educational setting. And I am really interested just to think about where you're headed next, which is, I think, a further future, um, interested in how this will affect access for people, because it should enhance 
access. To go along those lines uh, into the 2022 and beyond, uh, I'd be interested in your further afield view. Uh, but back to that access question, part of what makes uh, elite schools elite is the restriction or the difficulty to to get in. Um, and mm -hmm. you know, Brown's one of the most difficult schools to gain entrance to, um, as there are others as well. And and uh, and and I think you know your comment about the uh, I'm paraphrasing, but the mutual respect between groups that may or may not have worked together before. Uh, faculty and and your CETL group and so forth that they, um, you know that hopefully that mutual respect continues and and maybe there's more of an egalitarian opportunity. So, but anyway, it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts about you know longer, farther afield, longer distance, twenty twenty two and beyond. Sure. So first of all, let me say that um, my entire career at Brown I think was based on uh, two undergirding themes, one being access. So creating a pre-college program that has now grown to a very substantial size, the driver behind that was to create access for thousands and thousands of kids across the country and around the world who might never be at Brown for a four-year education, but who could have access to a stellar educational experience that uh, all of my team and I hoped was going to launch those kids into um, really ambitious um, higher education um, experiences and aspirations, whether they came to Brown or went to any other institution around the globe. Secondly, the, the, the point of access of the uh, master's programs that I worked on building in the School of Professional Studies was really all about giving the working professional access to the opportunity to learn at a place like Brown and to advance their professional careers through additional education, which was not something that the institution had been doing. So access is a theme for me. The second undergirding theme is collaboration. You can't do these things effectively without really strong collaboration with the faculty who provide the content, with the other teams of folks who help to uh, recruit the students and support the student life experience, whether the student is in 10th grade or um, as some of our master's students were in their 50s and 60s. They still need the good good support to uh, go through the educational experience, which is a very different experience than their typical daily life has been. Um, so to go to that point of collaboration, uh, one of the things I was thinking about before we uh, joined this call is the way in which medical schools have figured out a number of years ago, five, six, seven, ten years ago, that they should be delivering their content online because what their students needed was nimble flexibility to be in hospital settings, to be in clinical settings, to be where the action was when it was happening, and to be on a treadmill getting exercise, watching the lecture from the faculty member, not sitting in a classroom consuming hour after hour in that experience. So I believe most medical schools deliver the vast majority of their content in an online way. Beyond that, they capture the online content so that it can be reused. So that's creating an efficiency for the faculty and a freedom of access 
so that faculty can do other things, students can do other things, and it expands the uh, capacity of the educational experience. I'm hopeful for that kind of new respect for online education to be sure that students and parents around the world, that corporations around the world and higher education and secondary education around the world understands online content delivery to be every bit as powerful and able as residential, which should mean that you can gain access to excellent education, whether it's from a so-called elite school or from a really high quality content provider that really knows a particular uh, skill field, whether that's you know, in, uh, in industry or in healthcare or in disaster and recovery, whatever it is, the access should be broadly available and highly respected. And I would really love to see more collaboration because the fact that we replicate chemistry 101 or a math introductory math course, um, you know, at, at 4,000 institutions across the country just seems so silly. And it seems to me that wonderful, wonderful faculty researchers and teachers around the country could create more collaborative capacity so that they could deliver truly excellent education in a more efficient fashion that might actually be a huge amount of fun and inspiration for them, never mind what it would do for our students. So I, I think a whole new world of possibility um, is perhaps now open to us. And uh, I hope that higher education in particular will go after that and stop closing the walls of the Ivy institutions, closing the gates and keeping people out and actually invite people in. I think that's, that's awesome. And, and I, uh, I don't know if you remember me talking with you about uh, pooling the foreign language uh, across the Ivies and, and trying to, I mean, it's Spanish or it's French and, and, you know, I, I, I can't agree more, you know, accounting is accounting and uh, let's, let's put together five of the best accounting programs that address different learning styles or whatever it is that, that there might be several different flavors of that, but we don't need 4,000. <laughs> so. Right. Right. And I think if we're, if we're also really thoughtful and flexible about the education, I love your illustration, whether it's accounting or a language, right. That a student can start, start into a course and then perhaps discover that the course is a little ahead of them or a little, behind them and that they could quickly shift into just join another one, right? Mm -hmm. And that there would be an ease of transfer for that rather than, well, I'll just have to put up for a semester and then figure it out. Right, right. Well, what are some thoughts you have about, I'll call it enablers or, 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 uh, or barriers to the progress towards access that you envision in the, in the future? What, what are some things that you see that as, as potential barriers or potentially enablers that would help that happen? So I think, um, and I think we've sort of both referred to this, the experience that we've just come through, which isn't over yet, is certainly an enabler because people are discovering, whether they're on the delivery faculty side or the learner side, they're discovering that there are ways to use these tools that really suit their uh, personal styles and talents. 
and uh, and that's certainly an enabler. And as I mentioned before, the collaboration faculty to faculty. I've watched. I've been on, in a number of faculty meetings and and watched and listened to faculty help each other and share ideas. And it astonishes me. I'm a, I'm a member of the faculty in our education department. It has astonished me to sort of discover that this may be one of the only times that they were sharing pedagogical tactics in the education department. <laughs> but this this was happening because they needed each other. So uh, that's certainly become an enabler. And I think also the entrepreneurs in higher education, and I count you among those people, are uh, watching and listening and learning and responding to need. And so I expect that the capacity of technology will continue to improve and uh, and that new 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 capacities will be um, developed there already you know initially we couldn't really listen to music like a singing group without it sounding like total cacophony but uh, new capacities have emerged and people have begun to direct musical things where they can bring it together and make it sound completely beautiful. Um, or our own symphony orchestra here in, in Providence is actually teaching kids how to play instruments online because they can't be in their own rehearsals and their own performances, but they can do this other thing. So new capacities have emerged um, as a result of that. I think on the barrier side, you know, we've both agreed that uh, the marathon isn't over and we have to pace ourselves for yet more, uh, yet more challenge to be met. And I think people are already tired. We all feel that. And, um, and they will be more tired. And so uh, when you're tired, the, the thing you most want is to, you know, revert to your comfort food and your cozy fireside or just crawl into bed, right? And so in similar ways, I think we so desperately want to go back to those uh, comfortable classrooms that we enjoyed before and, you know, the the sitting on the green, reading a good book and, and chatting with casual friends and things of that sort. We really want to go back to those comfort zones. And I think um, that would be a little bit of a barrier, but uh, a deserved, a well-deserved break, I suspect. Um, and then, um, you know, we'll just, we'll, we'll see how people respond to uh, a dualistic world where the capacity to deliver online education and residential education you know, we, I was thinking earlier in the day, um, you know, we really tried hard with the concept of a flipped classroom, right, to get people to deliver their content online and then use the classroom time more effectively. Um, I think maybe that concept will be more readily embraced. Um, but I also think in, that we're all a little bit, uh, we need to think hard about this. I mean, flipped classroom is not a very meaningful term. In fact, it sounds either cute or silly. And that's not really a way to get faculty and students to say, I want to be there. Mm -hmm. So we have a responsibility to take down those, um, those barriers of uh, maybe sort of less than stellar professional engagement on the pedagogy side. Well, great. Well, Karen, thank you very much. And uh, I really appreciate you being involved in a, a mind maxing podcast and, and wish you the very best with your 2021. Thank you. Thank you so much. Same to you. This has been another interesting mind maxing podcast. Please listen to the other podcasts on this series 
or look for us later this summer when we release our next series of podcasts.